I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hi friends, happy Wednesday. I hope your day is treating you well. Today I am answering questions texted in from you on things like do extroverted fives exist? What are two and fives like in relationships? And can we talk a little bit more about the counterphobic six? But first, today's rosebud and thorn. My rose today is quite simply my morning coffee. We just don't give it enough we don't give it the credit it's due. I know that we do, right? Like, but first coffee, it's on everything. It's in the name of the podcast. But uh, the moment when you sit down and you know <laughs> this is going to taste just as good as it did yesterday, probably better because right now we feel like we needed it more. It's a good moment. I'm celebrating it today. My thorn is that, as many of you know, I have had some lung complications in the last like two years and we we're getting it figured out, but I had some medicine that was helping me and it is kind of having some gnarly side effects. And I think it's a weird thing to have to choose between one pain or another. Um, and that's kind of what's going on behind the scenes over here is just kind of being like, do I want to feel like I'm struggling to breathe or do I want to feel like I have the flu? And I don't want either of those, quite frankly. Um, but that's been kind of the situation I'm in as it stands. Now, my bud is getting the summit out to you guys. I know it's all I'm talking about, but it's like all I'm living right now. I'm doing like back to back interviews this week. I'm living in summit land, getting it out to as many people as possible. And I'm thrilled, honestly. I am so impressed with the people who have done this. It's so thoughtful and amazing. People have really showed up in incredible ways. So with that being said, I honestly am just over the moon excited for it to go live. If you haven't gotten your ticket yet, at this point, if you're listening in real time, I think we have about four days left for you to grab your seat, so don't miss it. We'll make sure to link it in the show notes for you to easily grab your spot. Okay, now let's get into today's questions. First of all, which type is most suited for quarantine? Um, I will say there are some who maybe have struggled with quarantine more than others, and I can also tell you that I have had a lot of type fives say that they are living for quarantine, loved it. It's like the thing they've been waiting for their entire lives. So I am not usually very quick, honestly, to say that one type is more suited to something than another. But in this situation, I think I'm pretty safe in saying that most fives have been thriving in quarantine. Not that things aren't hard, not that they were not struggling, but Taking all of that expectation, all of that people coming in, trying to take your time and energy away from you, being eliminated, I think that's kind of a sweet spot for our fives. Now, the next question we have is, do extroverted fives exist? I would say that the description of a five is very much related to that of introversion, although the sexual or the one-to-one -one five has been described to me as having an insatiable curiosity for people. Now, I know a lot of sociable fives personally, but I think in its nature, 
The type structure itself is about managing your energy levels through time alone and not overgiving. So that's pretty much the description of an introvert. Although I will say that there are a lot of sociable fives out there. Does that mean they get their energy from socializing? Not any that I've ever met or know. However, I wouldn't say that it's impossible. I just think it's probably pretty unlikely. The next question kind of piggybacks off of that and says, are there types that are almost always either introverted or extroverted? And I will say it really depends on who you ask. I'm personally not quick to put hard and fast rules like that onto things because I haven't seen conclusive research that has given me like a solid, complete answer. And I think oftentimes these things get used to disqualify someone else's experience, right? So like they're typing themselves and we're saying, well, that's not possible. There's no such thing as an introverted seven. And I'm just all about letting people come to their own conclusions, have their own experience. It's not my place to shove my preferences or my opinions into someone else's growth journey. Um, and I think it can also limit their access to expansion if they are, let's say, an introverted seven. Maybe they're a seven who's experiencing that move to five and maybe, you know, there's a lot there. So I'm not quick to say that. I also think we can do this with ourselves, right? Um, as we're typing, we feel like we deeply connect to one type, but we also feel like maybe we're introverted or maybe we're extroverted and that doesn't seem conclusive. I think that's worth still paying attention to what it is about that number that you feel connected to. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't seen the research. I don't want anyone to feel like this is a disqualifier for typing themselves. So I want to say no. However, there are schools of thought that do teach it through the introverted extroverted lens. I just don't personally subscribe to that as of now. The next question is, what is a helpful mantra for introverted fives who are quarantined with two extroverted littles? <laughs> um, so when I, the mantra that I thought of first was when I communicate my need for space, that is what allows me the freedom to take it. Meaning your need for space isn't likely to go away, right? However, you can ease the tension around that by communicating in advance with those you care about and the ones that it impacts. It's not going to give you a 100% success rate, but it will give you a fighting chance for more peace. It's when we don't communicate that people take it personally or feel confused or kind of invade upon that space, even though we're trying to take it. Communicating as directly as possible, carving out time every single day, every single week for you to have some time to yourself intentionally does feel important. Now, another possible mantra is, I am here in this moment. Allowing yourself to be where you are can help to alleviate the feeling of depletion when you aren't able to experience rest, right? Instead of thinking about where you'd rather be, you can appreciate the reality of where you are. This is often really helpful when we're in a situation, let's say, where we feel like we can't take our time in our space that we need and we have to sit there in maybe an overstimulating environment. To be here and say, I'm here in this moment means to just be present with what is and to enjoy it for what it is while it's here. Easier said than done, I know. And our next question is, I am a two wing one. I know twos often are characterized as helpers and not wanting to think about themselves, but I often think about myself and feel really selfish. 
Do you think that a common thing that's a common thing for twos? I have a really big emotions and when I let myself feel them, but then feel guilty afterward. I've had a hard time pinning down why I feel guilty. So being a help of, helper doesn't mean you don't have needs, right? It's about the standard that you hold yourself to. So this pressure to be someone who doesn't have needs and wanting them to go unexpressed. So it's not that type twos are without need, right? It's that they try to get their needs met by meeting the needs of others. Like it's somehow shameful to have needs of their own and that others should need them more than they need others. Now this explains the feeling of guilt because twos feel the pressure to be without need. Big emotions signify unmet needs, which is an uncomfortable place to be for most type twos. Another piece of this that could be at play is that there is a self-preservation too, which is a subtype of two, that's a bit different than the others. So this type isn't as overtly helpful, but wants to be loved and liked for who they are, not what they do. Their way of getting their needs met is through being cute or childlike so that others come in and help them. This could be another piece that's going on, although I don't know that that is necessarily true in this case, but it's just something else to consider. All right, our next question is, I am a bit confused by Enneagram in general. I used to believe wholeheartedly that I was a two, and I once may have been, I suppose, but when I read about their strengths and weaknesses, I felt lost, almost broken. I retook the test and tested as a six. I started reading up on that personality and I sure have a lot more of those traits, but again, some are so completely out of my character that I'm now wondering if we all just have bits and pieces of all personalities. Am I looking at all things all wrong? So first of all, there are some similarities between six and two. Both are compliant types, both are relational. The thing to keep in mind is going back to the fears and motivators. We can have all these kinds of strengths and weaknesses from every type. It's really about who you think to ha you have to be in the world. Do you have to be helpful in order to be loved or do you have to be supported in order to be safe? It goes back to the reasons for our behaviors more than the behaviors themselves. Now, when it comes to relating to more than one type, something else that could be considered is the reality of subtypes, which is that some types are countertypes, meaning we have a motivation of one number, but we have behavior that looks like another. So that could be a case with a self-preservation too can sometimes look like a six. So these are some things to keep in mind. If you relate to the motivations of a two, but your behaviors sometimes look like a six, that might be something to play with. We will take a quick pause in today's questions to hear from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Athena Club. I have been a very erratic shaver for maybe the last six years, but as the warmer weather comes and summers are right around the corner, I cannot wait to get back into like that regular routine of freshly shaved legs, just kind of sliding into the cozy sheets at the end of the day. This first shave though, after letting your hair grow out for a while is um, sometimes tricky, but always satisfying. Now, right now, it's not so tricky because I've been using the razor from Athena Club. It, the, I just need a razor that makes shaving uncomplicated, that is friendly with my redhead skin, leaving me feeling moisturized and smooth and bump free. And the Athena Club razor is hands down the best razor I have ever used. Athena's Club's razor has thousands of five-star reviews and is designed with built-in skin guards and an innovative handle to help prevent razor burn while being gentle on curves. 
Plus, the razor blade is surrounded by water-activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid, which is like the holy grail of skincare and moisturization. Now, the best part is the razor kit is only $9. How is that even possible? And it comes with your choice of handle color, an extra blade head, and a magnetic hook for easy shower storage. Athena Club has the dreamiest shave foam that's been in, that's back in stock. Together, the Athena Club razor and shave foam will leave your skin soft, hydrated, and perfectly smooth. Now, this razor, it makes shaving feel like less a, a lot less like a chore, like something I have to do, and much more like this like zened out me time really taking in some self-care. I got this like beautiful coral color and they each handle is weighted, so every time I use it, it feels like I'm using something very fancy for only $9. So show your skin you care with the Athena Club Razor Kit. Sign up today and you will get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use the promo code EGRAM. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-C-L-U-B.com with promo code E Graham for 20% off your order. Thank you, Athena Club, for supporting the podcast. Okay, our next question was quite simply two and five in relationship exclamation point. <laughs> now, this is actually a pretty common pairing. A few things that are amazing about this pairing are that twos help fives to come out of their shell, and fives are logical and supportive partners, which can be very grounding for our twos. Now, the struggle here is that the two will always want more of the five's time and attention than the five may feel like they have. And the five will need to work on communicating their need for space graciously, as well as intentionally giving what their type two gives to them as an act of love, meaning pay attention to how your two loves you and love them in that way because oftentimes our twos are giving what they actually want and need. And the two will need to work on falling in love with their own life on their own so that they are still thriving when the five is doing their own thing and then not taking their needs for, need for space personally, right? When that five is going off to recharge, it is not about how much they want to be around you. It's, you've done nothing wrong. It's not about you at all. It's just like they don't believe they have the energy to keep going with the day. They need a little bit of time to recoup. It's not about you, but the more happy you are with your life outside of them, the easier it will be to let them take that space. This type can, these, this pairing can be so good for each other, though if they let themselves be impacted by one another, right? Like you have to let each other impact you. And the five in this way can help the two to enjoy their alone time, while the two can help the five to give more than they realized they had to give. So it's actually pretty beautiful. Our next question is, can you talk more about counterphobic sixes? I'm a counterphobic six and feel like I don't relate a lot to typical sixes and would like to know about my type a little more. So yes, I have an entire episode on the subtypes of six that may be of interest to you. Um, there are some different schools of thought here. So according to the work of Naranjo and Beatrice Chestnut, the counterphobic six, when faced with fear, they take the oppositional stance. They power up instead of backing down. Now this type six may be more adventurous, less risk averse, and use strength to respond to threat. So they feel afraid, they power up, they face the fear instead of running away from the fear or seeking support. 
Now, there's another concept around sixes that suggests that all sixes have some element of counterphobic and phobic in them. Sixes are a type that is kind of innately contradictory. Loyal but skeptical, trustworthy but not trusting, kind of a back and forth, right? There are some that believe that sixes hold both phobic and counterphobic qualities in them innately. The phobic side and the counterphobic to kind of different degrees. Either way, the underlying motivation is a reaction to fear and a desire to be supported. There are just different methods to achieving that desire. The phobic six achieves that desire by preparing for the future, processing worst case scenarios, avoiding risk, and the counterphobic six runs straight toward that fear, powers up, gets stronger, and wants to prove their strength. So in this situation, when you are a countertype, which every single number on the Enneagram has a countertype, that just means that your motivation is the same as the number, but your behavior may be different. So for the counterphobic six, you're motivated by being safe and secure, and you earn that safety and security through powering up, becoming stronger, facing your fears. With any countertype, I often recommend learning from the numbers you can resemble. So for our counterphobic six, you can resemble an eight in a lot of ways. And so learning about the eight can benefit you as well as learning about the six. Hopefully that is helpful. Our next question is, can you explain more about sexual, social, self-preservation variants? Yes. So subtypes are essentially the three ways that we survive in the world. Sexual is, or one-to-one -one is deep personal relationships or even procreation. Social is where we are in the social hierarchy. Self-preservation is making sure we get our needs met. Now, we all have all three of these variants. We just have one that is dominant, one that is secondary, and one that is repressed. So according to the work of Beatrice Chestnut, there are unique descriptions for each of these types, meaning there are actually 27 Enneagram types. We think of it as the nine, but when you get into the intricacies of the subtypes, there are really truly 27 true types. I did an episode for each subtype in detail that you can go check out and then grab her book, The Complete Enneagram, if you wanna get like the nitty gritty intricate details there because it's incredible. Um, however, other type, other things to keep in mind are that other schools of thought kind of think of the, in, the subtypes as an overlay to your type. So all sexual types have kind of this underlying theme, all social have this theme and self-pres, etc. which I don't think contradicts the work of Beatrice Chestnut by any means. I think she's just kind of made it more intricate. And I always reference it as Beatrice Chestnut work. And then Beatrice always references it as Naranjo's work. So it's a building, I think. <laughs> so just to be clear, but in, in general, we think of the sexual or the one-to-one -one subtypes as the types who are looking for one-to-one -one connection. They are big on eye contact, deep intimacy. They want intensity. They want fire. This type runs hot. Then we have our social subtype, which is focused on kind of where they are in the social hierarchy. Where am I playing? Where am I at play here? Um, I, and they want to like make have a place in the group. This type tends to run cool, meaning they may be a little bit more distant or, um, you know, like they're a little less like likely to kind of connect with you right off the gate and 
seek deep intentional eye contact with you. It's a, they run a lot cooler than that, right? And then we have our self-pres type, which is focused on their their own needs getting met. These people, self-pres people are big on creature comforts, like good food, warm blankets, cozy spaces. They want to like feel good and safe and they want to make sure that they're physically safe and emotionally safe and they have all of their needs met and everything is, you know, everything they need is here. Self-pres types run warm. They tend to be very warm, friendly, and welcoming. So hopefully that gives you a good insight into the subtypes, but I will say I am teaching a workshop on subtypes at the at the IEA conference that's happening in July. So I will put the link to that in the notes for you as well. So you guys can go check that out. And I'm teaching like a whole workshop just on subtypes. All right, next question is nature versus nurture and the Enneagram. Again, I am not one to say that I know the answer to anything for sure, especially if I haven't seen like deep research on it. Um, so on one hand though, my hunch is that it's nature, that we are born with an innate sensitivity and our early childhood experiences are viewed through that lens and solidified through the experiences that we have. So that's how I make sense of having brothers who lived through very similar things to me and yet we are so different or how I meet some sevens and their version of, of our shared childhood wound is so different than mine. I believe we we're born looking for evidence that we have to be who we think we have to be. So I thought my whole life, I, you know, I was born thinking I have to be happy and fun and free. And every early childhood experience proved to me that that was true. Now, on the other hand, I'm a real big fan of the soul child theory and it can kind of contradict this belief. So the soul child theory is that our essence, our youngest self is the number we go to and rest. And somewhere in our life, we learned it wasn't safe to be that. So our dominant type formed as a way to protect our soul child. This has honestly made the most sense to me in my journey and to many people that I've worked with over the years. So um, th with that being said, you know, the, the difference here being I was born a five and I just wanted to kind of be in my own little world, create my own magic, uh, read and explore and learn things. But somewhere along the way, likely through my childhood wound, which is kind of a lack of adequate nurturing, I learned that the five, I wasn't going to get my needs met as a five. So I needed to become charming and sociable and fun to be around in order to get that need met. For me, I think of it as in order to get the nurturing that I craved, I had to become a seven. Now, with that being said, I'm personally not uncomfortable holding the tension that these two beliefs create. Now, for those of you who want a definitive answer, I believe it's a combination of the two, right? We are born nature, the type we go to in health, and then nurture trained us into protecting ourselves through the sensitivity that we kind of already had, looking for evidence that we couldn't be who we were. Our world kind of proved to us that this wasn't okay that we weren't safe to be who we were born as, born into, born into the world as. And so we form our type to protect little us. Little us in the deep, deep down is who we go to, where we go to and rest. That's kind of my opinion. It's an opinion to be clear. Okay, final question. 
how to best stay in neutral or health for each type. So I think this would be a really great series for me to do moving forward, um, levels of health for each type. But in general, our growth path with the Enneagram is mostly about expanding beyond what we think we have to be in order to be right in the world. Moving beyond being the good little boy or girl, being helpful, being successful, being significant, informed, supported, free, strong, easy to get along with, whatever our type fixates on. The Enneagram invites us into expanding our definition of who we are beyond just the type we identify with. So if we want to start growing, we can start by allowing ourselves to behave outside of our expectation, outside of what we think it means to be right in the world, kind of inviting all of the types into ourselves. So I think that's one element of working with the Enneagram is really about, I don't have to be this type all the time and in every way. However, I also think there's some element of normalcy that we would experience the range of health in a given day, in a given week, based off of different circumstances, where we are at in our life, or even maybe have some elements in our life that we're healthier in and other elements in which we struggle. So maybe you're really healthy at work, but you struggle in relationship and you can work to expand beyond your Enneagram type in specific areas if that seems true for you. But again, I think this would be a really good series. So maybe we can expand on that moving forward. Okay, friends, thank you for joining me for another Q&A episode. As always, it's an absolute joy to create this content for you, and I will see you tomorrow for the next one. Bye.